In this special episode of the Agenda podcast that's brought to you by Oxera, we're reporting from their collective antitrust litigation event taking place simultaneously in London, uh, where we are, but also in Paris, Milan, Berlin and Amsterdam, attended by over 100 legal professionals, where the discussions are centering around collective actions in Europe. Hi and welcome to the Agenda podcast. My name is Russell Goldsmith. Uh, we're recording this episode at Oxera's Collective Antitrust Litigation event, uh, where Joseph Bell, partner at Oxera, is about to host a panel session where he'll be taking a deep dive into the issues facing the UK collective action landscape going forward. Joseph will be joined by guest panellists Rosie Yuanu, a director at Fortress, Mark Sansom, partner and joint head of the Global Antitrust Litigation Group at Freshfields, uh, Sophie Edwards, senior associate at Hordfeld, and finally Kate Vernon, partner and head of competition litigation at Quinn Emanuel. And I'm delighted to say Joseph joins me now ahead of that session. Uh, Joseph, what are you looking forward to from today? Well, this is perfectly timed for a discussion of these collective issues. We have a lot of new cases that have come out just in the past year, and this is a real opportunity for us as practitioners, as lawyers and economists, to reflect on some of the lessons that we can take from the recent case law and case experience. And why have you brought your guests together for your particular session, and also what are you hoping will come out of that discussion? We've heard already today some of the interesting discussion about some of the cross-jurisdictional issues that are right coming out of collective actions across Europe. And I think this is an opportunity for us who are working in litigation in London at the moment to really think about how those are playing out in the UK um, in particular, and perhaps think about some of the developments that will be coming in the year ahead. That's great. Well, Joseph, uh, good luck with that session. Before we hear that panel discussion, I've been wandering around the networking area to gather the thoughts of some of the attendees here to get their thoughts on what they've heard so far today and what they're looking forward to from Joseph's session that's coming up. My name is David Gallagher. I work for Geraldine Partners, which is a boutique antitrust law firm. What was your key takeaways from that first session? At exciting times in the world of collective actions, particularly in the UK and Netherlands. Sounds like there are maybe some teething issues in, in Germany and, and France and, and Italy. It was a learning thing for me. I didn't know much about what was going on there. But yeah, exciting times, lots of growth. And what are you looking forward to from the next panel session, which focuses more around the UK? So... Annelie talked a lot about the wealth of cases that had been launched in the last two years and the low threshold at certification. I'm interested to hear what people think about the next steps, so about settlement, about um, actual infringement or, or decisions which lead to damages being paid out, because that's the great unknown about the UK regime at the moment. Alexandra Hilliard from Brian Cave, Leighton Paisner. It was just, it was very interesting to see the different stage that uh, the collective actions procedure is in, in different jurisdictions. Particularly interesting to see where the UK sits in all of that. And it seems like there's still, still quite a long way to go across Europe, but definitely big steps have been taken in the past couple of years. And it'll be really interesting to see where it goes from there. I think in the next session, most interested in hearing about the tension between some of the direct claims that are proceeding in the UK at the moment and much more established in the collective actions procedure. It's obviously a very fertile area for development. So yeah, I'm interested in hearing how a lot of that plays out and particularly any perspectives on, on pass-on that might be given, given that that's kind of an area where those kind of tensions tend to, to come to head. 
So I'm Ben Blacklock from BCLP. I think the key takeaway is um, the way in which different jurisdictions are trying to grapple with the real issue of setting, but well, both encouraging class actions on the one side, but also making sure that they don't become so huge and learning from the differences in the US system um, and trying to set their own course in terms of different ways of getting that right. Uh, I think I'm looking forward to a bit of a discussion about the tensions between direct and indirect sides and how you set classes within subclasses. My name's Claire Duxbury of Case Pilots. I think what was really interesting about it was seeing the comparisons of how the, the different collective action regimes are developing across different continental European jurisdictions, especially when from the outside it's sometimes perceived that they are all working along the same track. And I think today highlighted that there are significant differences between the different regimes. Well, I practice predominantly in the UK so and doing only collective actions. So uh, for me, it's going to be really interesting to get some takeaways and some insights from some of the parties who are sort of key stakeholders in that in that area. Okay, well, time to hand over to Joseph for the panel discussion. Welcome, Welcome back. back, Joseph. For those who don't know me, Joseph, I'm a partner in Oxera's competition practice. Fairly lengthy history working in collective actions in the UK in the sense that I was involved in the first one, the Pride Mobility Scooters case, and involved in the various cases since. So with that in mind, you'll forgive a little bit of Chair's reminiscence before I introduce the panel. It was back in 2019 when I last attended one of these discussions focusing on collectives. And this was in the post-Merrick's judgment in the first instance in the CAT. And their topic of discussion was, where are all the competition collective actions. The panel engaged in a little bit of detective work. Was this just the Merrick's judgment putting things in suspended animation? Or was there some deeper blocker acting in the regime that meant that the predicted floodgate of cases would never open? Two years and one Supreme Court decision later, and how things have changed. You certainly don't need a detective to spot growing collective actions these days. And 2021 and 2022 in particular have seen a mass of new applications being brought in the CAT, if indeed that is the right collective pronoun. Indeed, such is the number of cases being brought now that it is now possible to start to look at trends and themes that are emerging from these collective actions. And we're very lucky to get the insights from Annalee Howard earlier on these. The kind of themes we can see coming through are that consumers are the primary focus in terms of claimant groups, but not the exclusive focus. Claimants are not scared to raise standalone actions on novel issues, and this includes in particular abuse of dominance, where they're prepared to be looking at the less tested parts of what that part of competition law entails, driven in particular by some of the more novel cases in the tech sector. We've also seen that these cases, once brought, are enjoying a, uh, a high degree of success, at least at the certification stage. This is changing the UK litigation regime, but also the competition regime um, as a whole. The amount of active cases, and I dare say among this audience, cases in busy development, and the amount of legal and economic analysis is underpinning this, means there is now more activity in competition enforcement than what the CMA or European Commission could ever have hoped to achieve alone. But we are at a crucial point. A lot of collective claims have launched, but with the possible 
exception of Pride Mobility. None of them have yet reached a landing. There therefore remains considerable uncertainty, both on the claimant and defendant side of the defence, and perhaps some excitement and indeed perhaps some trepidation as to where the regime is going to go from here. And it is the perfect time to reflect on these UK-specific issues here today. To assist us all in this, we are fortunate enough to be joined by a highly expert panel, all deeply involved in the current developments in the regime, introducing them from closest to furthest away. On my left is Sophie Edwards, who is a dual qualified uh, English and Australian uh, senior associate currently at Hausfeld um, LP. Um, she has experience working on large-scale competition and commercial disputes. Um, she actually started her involvement in competition litigation on the defence side at Slaughter and May before shifting to the London Hausfeld team on the claimant side, where she is involved in a large number of collective actions, including the now certified opt-out actions against Apple, Google, and Qualcomm in the alleged abuse of dominance in the App Store, Play Store, and chipsets market, respectively. To her left is Rosie Yuanu. Rosie is this panel's ambassador from the all-important funding community. Uh, a lawyer by training, Rosie has a background in private practice, um, spending time in particular at the litigation department at Allen & Overy here in London, but she has since transitioned to litigation funding, where she's currently director at the Fortress Investment Group, offering bespoke funding solutions for clients seeking litigation funding and indeed portfolio financing. She has a particular expertise in large complex matters, including current group claims and competition claims before the CAT. To her left is Mark Sanson, litigation antitrust partner at Freshfields London office. He leads the firm's litigation department and co-chairs Freshfields Global Antitrust Group. In this capacity, he has acted on the defence side of the most complex UK competition damages cases, in particular collective proceedings before the CAT and some of the formative cases that we'll be discussing today. Very aptly, given the focus of today's event, Mark also is regularly responsible for coordinating investigations and litigation where common matters arrive in multiple jurisdictions across Europe. And finally, on my far left is Kate Vernon, who previously headed the UK competition team at DLA Piper and is currently the head of competition litigation practice at Quinn Emanuel in London. Her competition law practice brings uh, her to advising clients on all aspects of UK and EU competition law, and she has significant experience with competition litigation, including, of course, class actions. But that's not our only focus, as well as working on competition on the claimant and defendant side. Kate's wider practice also includes IP and FRAND disputes for the competition element, and she advises clients on GDPR compliance and Data Protection Act and as part of this, she is also Quinn Emanuel's GDPR internal compliance partner, and she is the final member of our panel. So the idea of the format for this panel is we are going to have a few quickfire questions that um, we're working through, building on a number of very live topics in the UK class action sphere. Myself and the panel will reflect on these topics, and at the end, we will allow time for audience questions as well. Now, one of the most notable aspects of the UK class action regime is how fast it's moved. Many, many cases now certified. So, um, Rosie, from a funding perspective, do you think the bar for certification has got too low? 
Thanks, Joseph, and thanks to Oxira for inviting me uh, more generally onto this panel. I'm very conscious as a funder in the room that I'm talking about the bar to certification sandwiched between the brilliant Annalee Howard and equally brilliant Mark on this panel in terms of the law. So as is usual when I speak on these panels, I'm going to give you very little substance and instead I'm going to give you some observations and leave the law to the experts. So as I think Annalee made clear, and I think everybody in this room knows, that the certification of judgments in the CAT regime started with a trickle, and the last year or so, as is fair to say, seen a steady flow of judgments. Some of them, I think, very importantly, subsequently affirmed by the Court of Appeal. The certification of these cases has generated much debate on a range of issues, including the much-discussed question, is the bar for certification too low? Now, I just take a step back from there to start with because everybody seems to be forgetting the starting point for bringing these claims and it seems to me as an observation, partisan subjective observation, that the vast majority of these claims are being certified because the teams behind them are working extremely hard to ensure that the statutory certification criteria are met before they even take the cases to the CAT. Good claimant lawyers and economists, solicitors and barristers, aren't just throwing claims into the CAT and crossing their fingers that, and hoping they're going to meet the certification regime. They're working really, really, really hard for a long time to ensure the claims they are bringing are viable, meritorious claims that meet the statutory criteria. On the substantive merit of the case, yes, but also on the procedural requirements. But anyway, I'm taking us slightly off topic, and I acknowledge that that is kind of a segue that takes shows which side of the fence I sit, if anybody didn't know already. So what does it mean by posing the question, is the bar to certification too low? Too low for what? At the outset of the regime, there was, I think, a general view that once claims have overcome the certification hurdle, that would result in settlement. Look at the Americanization of the regime everybody's talking about. And because that was the perception at the outset of the regime, I think you could conclude on that basis alone, the bar is too low. The certification of claims under the English regime isn't going to drive settlement post-certification. Arguably, there may be other reasons why there's settlement post-certification, but not because of certification in and of itself. But if we all take a step back, was that ever a realistic expectation of the structure of the regime as it was presented here, given the whole hope and purpose of the structure was to avoid the Americanization we were looking at? So what are we looking for in certification? I think that's a balance to be struck, right, between any number of competing factors. Certainty of the regime, cost management, only good viable claims proceeding, but also good viable claims not being stifled, a reasonable and rational approach to group claims, and dare I say it, access to justice. So with this in mind, 
I turn the question the other way around. And to be slightly inflammatory, because we were told to be, what are the defendants genuinely looking for when they seek to challenge certification? How high do they want the bar to be? I get that they need to do a robust job for their clients and a thorough job on behalf of their clients. And as some of the defendant lawyers would say, often to ensure that the represented class are properly, their interests are properly protected. It, it, you know, it's thoughtful of them. But from a funder's perspective, my experience tells me that defendants are using the certification stage to increase cost and to take advantage of the lack of precedent in the statutory framework to date to create uncertainty for the claims that are afoot. So is the bar for certification now too low for defendants? Maybe it is. But does that mean the bar is too low for the competing factors I talked about before? Certainty of the regime, cost management, only good viable claims proceeding, claims not being stifled, a reasonable and rational approach to group claims, access to justice. I don't think anybody can reasonably say necessarily that it is. So... In my view, in the certification judgments to date, to give the CAT credit, I think it has sought to cut through the noise by the varied and extensive challenges to certification presented and to try to bring certainty to the regime as it grows and develops. Has the CAT got it right every time? Maybe not. Have the Court of Appeal judgments helped support the precedent setting? Absolutely. Is that certainty that is being created, whatever level the bar is at, helpful for everybody in this room? I think it is. So I don't envy the CAT's job in weighing up the competing factors to certification. And we all acknowledge that it's still a nascent and developing regime. But I think in the certification approach the CAT and the Court of Appeal has taken to try to keep the regime on track has generally been a good one. Thank you, Rosie. And I think a, a number of questions there um, addressed at the defence bar. And Mark, I'm conscious you're not a speaker for defendants, but I don't know if you want to reflect more generally on the question on whether the bar for certification is indeed too low and how the regime has panned out. Sure. Well, I won't disappoint you. I'll, I'll argue that it is uh, too low. But uh, let me unpack that because there's obviously a number of dimensions to that question. I think one of them is, is the certification bar lower than Parliament intended when they enacted the Consumer Rights Act? That's one way of looking at this. Uh, another way of thinking about it is, is it producing optimal or suboptimal outcomes? And I think that breaks down into a couple of other questions. So one, is it actually screening things out meaningfully? And second, is it actually helping the tribunal manage its pipeline of, of cases? So just taking the first of those points, is it lower than Parliament intended? Anyone who really wants to dive into this could get the transcript from the Court of Appeal hearing in, in Gutman, um, where this was debated at some length, although to, to no avail in the end. I think the answer is it's pretty clear that this is not where Parliament envisaged the bar would be. Although the preparatory documents, the command papers, the consultation stuff that was done, uh, it's fairly exiguous. There are clear statements in there that there was this desire to avoid the perceived excesses of US class action litigation. It was stated in terms that there should be a robust merits assessment at the certification stage in order to ensure that only uh, meritorious cases go forward. Uh, and as a result of judicial interpretation of the legislation, 
uh, in particular in Merricks in the Supreme Court and now more recently in Gutman in the Court of Appeal, both appeals that I have lost. You're welcome, everyone. Um, uh, where we've got to is now some distance away from there. And, you know, I, th I think the core point of departure in Merricks is effectively the reading out from the act of, of and the rules actually of, of the rule 79.2 criteria in particular, these things that the tribunal was meant to take into account as part of an overarching discretion have been pretty much read out of the legislation. And when you look at where we've got to in both Merricks and Gutman in terms of the scope of 47C2, Merricks obviously holds that that um, allows for not only aggregate damages calculation, but in light of Gutman, we've now got that provision interpreted as meaning aggregate liability is also within the scope of the legislation. Uh, and that, you know, results in the issue that Annalie referred to earlier of having cases now going forward which are effectively not only taking a different approach to certification than I think was intended, but are also at risk of rewriting substantive tort law because we're moving away from this being purely procedural vehicle to things which actually are changing the nature of the constituent elements of a tort. And actually whether you need to show that every person in a claim has a co-hate claim that ticks the boxes of all the things you'd need to do to prove that claim if you went to court individually. We're getting away from that now. And it's, you know, it's all super interesting, but where it leaves us, if you look at the international benchmarks, is we have clearly the lowest certification bar of any common law jurisdiction, with the sole exception of Australia. Why? Because they don't have certification at all. And there, though, they strike the equilibrium in a different way. They don't have certification, but they have a class action system that's based more on representative actions. They do have an aggregate damages power, but it's only been used once, and that's on appeal. The balance is struck very differently. And we have now ended up, for all the talk of adopting the Canadian approach, in somewhere which is clearly more pro-certification than Canada, even. And Gutman, and I should say Gutman won, because now that he's a serial PCR, there's three of them, of course, <laughs> which I'm doing. But Gutman won the train tickets case in the course of appeal. Where we've ended up there is that you've got these no-loss situations, uh, and that is an issue in Canada. Cases like Dennis and Ket and Muteros have all found that where you have these proposed classes that have a preponderance of highly individualized causal situations, they are not appropriate to be determined as common issues because you can't fundamentally do that. And the Canadian system also envisages that even where you have common issues and collective proceedings, that might take you to a certain point, but beyond that, you've got to revert to individual issue trials. And we've adopted this sort of all or nothing approach that everything has to be dealt with collectively, otherwise somehow the regime doesn't work. And I think judicially where we've gone a bit awry is we've taken that sort of policy-driven approach that this must be made to work, it must be seen to work, even if actually some of these very ambitious claims that happen to be amongst the first to go up and appeal don't really work and probably won't work ultimately. Uh, and I think where that leaves us is really sort of ushering in a number of challenges that we're storing up sort of later in the process. So just the other questions I pose very quickly, is it operating as a meaningful screen? I think it's implicit in what I said in a lot of the discussions today that it's, it's not, but also, and this is not actually a sort of died in the wall defendant point, it's a point about whether the thing's working coherently for everybody. There's a lot of unpredictability. We could have had a system which is all predicated on the sales legate 
conception of this regime, which would have been very different and would have had a very different equilibrium built into it. And we were a hair's breadth away from that being the reality. So I think these are, are genuine points. But it's not screening out cases generally. There are obviously exceptions around opt-out claims, which we can talk about later, opt-out corporate claims anyway, carriage disputes. And then there's this sort of uncertainty around particular issues that the tribunal just doesn't like, even post-Merics. It's compound interest, you know, even in Merics itself, or market-wide theories of harm and effects. You know, there are certain things that the tribunal will latch onto in a way that's quite hard to predict. And I think a lot of uncertainty as well around just the approach to judgments. Look at FX, you know, 240 pages plus annexes. The very next judgment of the same chair in the tribunal in a case which is, you know, standalone abuse of dominance, quite complicated markets, 20 pages. So there's just a lot of variation that I think is indicative of a regime that has not yet settled down. And, and, and I will pause there uh, in case, uh, Rosie or one of the other panel members, that sparked any further thoughts about where the bar is and where it should sit. Sophie. Just a quick one, um, just for Mark, just to put it to you. I mean, what we are seeing at the certification stage is whether or not this claim is suitable to be certified as a collective proceedings. It's not whether or not this claim can be brought full stop. It's not a merits review. That's very clear. That's very clear in all the statute law. And quite frankly, defendants are able to make a strikeout if they think there are merits problems. Why is it then that you still consider the bar to be very low in circumstances where all the tribunal is really supposed to assess is is collective proceedings correct for this case that's been put before it? Yep, so if I answer that, for example, by reference to Canada, so that, and actually by reference to Goodman, let's take a real case, um, which as I say, you know, I've just lost this argument in the Court of Appeal, but it's a... It's a, you know, clearly very heavy policy-driven judgment, and my own view is what it's worth that that policy balance has been struck in the wrong, the wrong place. But if you look at a claim which, for example, has probably a very large proportion of um, claims in the proposed class which are no-loss situations and which will at some point need to be removed. Otherwise, you have an aggregate damages calculation and award which doesn't comply with the principle of compensation, even at the aggregate class-wide level, which Merrick's Supreme Court says you need to do. And so, even in a world where you don't have a merits assessment, if you're applying the process standard as it's supplied in Canada, if you have a case which is not amenable to ever winnowing out the bad claims of uninjured proposed class members, then that doesn't work. And what we have now is a system that says that doesn't matter because this has to work, so we just abstract above all of those challenging situations and we plow on to trial. And, and the broad axe just gets trotted out as the sort of you know, answer to all of this. We'll just figure this out at trial, we'll make some back of envelope calculation, something will turn up. And I think there are some cases where you can tell now that the methodology is not ultimately going to stand up when held against the Microsoft and process standard. And I think what I would be looking for is what has happened at least some of the Canadian cases, which is itself seen as very claimant friendly. I would be looking for the nettle to be grasped, where you can see already at the certification stage that it will never be doable. And I think that is where I would say, even in a no merits world, we've gone a bit off beam. So we've seen considerable success in the consumer um, bar, and t time will tell how much that consensus lasts. We've seen a much more mixed picture, so consumer claims, so consumer bar. Um, we've seen a much more mixed picture in terms of business claims, certainly business opt-out claims, and indeed I think some are questioning whether there's even a way forward for some of those claims. So, so K 
Kate, I wonder if you'd like to reflect on whether there's any hope within the regime for opt-out business claims. Yes, well, thank you. I mean, I think all of the points you've just been talking about in consumer claims have been very squarely raised as the issues in looking at opt-out business claims. And if you look at the, the very long judgment in the FX collective actions, a, a number of these points about strength and the appropriateness of taking unmeritorious cases forward were ventilated. And I, there's a particular bit in the FX judgment where Marcus Smith talks about lawyers being used to assessing the strength of a case at a very early stage. And I think this was your point, Mark, that in consumer cases and consumer opt-out actions, that's being put to one side, but it's definitely not where it's a business claim. And I think it's fair to say that the business-based opt-out actions have fared badly in the CAT. I'll look at some of the reasons why. Unpacking the reasons from the, the sort of seminal judgment, the FX judgment, is going to take far longer than we have today. And I think just one point I'd pause on there, I wonder if it's going to stall again the regime, because I see today the CAT's published the order giving permission to appeal. It's clearly for very wide reasons, the CAT says, I think something along the lines of, you know, these, these raise very seminal issues for the regime. Are we gonna have another Merricks? Everyone off to the Supreme Court, everyone waiting to see what happens situation. I, I think we may well, actually. I mean, if you look at what the CAT did in the FX judgment in refusing those claims, it goes through the Rule 79 test, it goes through the standard assessment on eligibility, suitability, and then goes on again to do it again in the decision as to whether it should proceed as an opt-out claim or an opt-in. Um, and the CAT says it has full discretion to look at those issues all over again. And you can't just read across the assessment taken under the, the eligibility test and the authorization test and, and apply it. And what they really looked at in deciding in FX not to certify those claims was the strength question. And they, they looked at practicability, but to my mind, the real um, turning point was the strength question. I think there's a number of uncertainties around how they actually got to that decision, to, to my mind. And I think when I was looking at the judgment again last night and the, the 250 pages of it, and, and one of my children said to me, oh, mommy, I feel sorry for you. That's, <laughs> that's a lot to read. And I thought I felt sorry for myself at the end because I just still couldn't work out how to unpack it for you all, other than to, to look at some of the things that I think actually come out of the dissenting judgment are really where I would start in reading that. And I think one of the really important things that the CAT picked up on um, in the, the majority of the judgment was about were the class members interested or the proposed class members interested in this claim such that an opt-out should be permitted. I think as, as the lay-mass dissenting judgment says, this puts the claimants in a pretty invidious position. You know, what do you do? Do you try to book build? Do you try to make it an opt-in claim? If that fails, is that then going to be used against you when you say, well, that was a reason why an opt-in claim was not practicable? 
And I think that is going to be a very difficult call for people looking from a business perspective how to put these claims together. I think the funders might find it you know, a difficult um, assessment to make. You know, how far do you try to build an opt-in? The access to justice point was very um, looked at in a lot of detail, and the cat in the majority held that it does not mean that because a claim was only proposed on an opt-out basis that you should be permitted to proceed. If that meant that the claim wasn't bought, so be it if, if it failed the strength and the practicality or practicability um, tests. Is that access to justice is the question posed in, in the dissenting judgment? I think it's a case specific it will be fact specific and I think you know it's a very lawyer's answer but it, it's it will be the right case that will be certified as an opt-out but certainly I think from it's actually the opposite the bar is quite high at this stage one attempt we seem to square this circle is the hybrid model we have an opt-out and an opt-in claim happening simultaneously on the same um, issue particularly we've seen this in the Harkus Parker claim in the interchange cases. Am I going to have any reflections on whether that's a solution for uh, business claims going forward? Yeah, I'm for MasterCard on that one, <laughs> without giving away my intended arguments in the CPO hearing in due course. I mean, let's, let's say that I have an issue conceptually with the running of opt-in and opt-out together there. So people probably know, but the way that's set up is that business claimants who generated more than 100 million of annual turnover would have to opt in, whereas businesses generating less than that threshold amount would be part of the opt-out class. And I have a conceptual difficulty with the idea that businesses generating, say, 95 million pounds of annual turnover wouldn't be capable of opting in uh, or indeed bringing their own uh, claim. I think especially in interchange of all cases where we've got an umbrella proceedings order, and I know we'll come back and talk to those later, but there are ways to just insert yourself in that sort of massive ongoing litigation that don't mean that you, know, you would need to be part of an opt-out. I think if you look back at past tribunal judgments like Breezley Pillows, which is a foam cartel follow-on case from a few years ago, um, in that case I think it was uh, Peter Roth said that a claim of you know, nine million pounds is a worthwhile claim that a claimant could be expected to bring, uh, you know, on a, on a standalone uh, basis. So, you know, against that backdrop, I really struggle with the way that's set up. I think there are other interesting things about that claim which I struggle with. Is, um, it looks like Harkus Parker have taken a sort of a GLO type modus operandi and sought to transpose that into the collective proceedings context. So, for example, we have things like um, sample claimants you know, being proposed as a, as a method. Uh, and that clearly hasn't been done before in the, the collective proceedings concept. So we'll have to see how that all goes, I guess. You, you raised the issue of where multiple cases are dealing with similar related issues. And this, of course, not just collective proceedings, but sometimes overlaps with business to business proceedings as well. So, okay, I don't know if you want to reflect on practical ways that we can work with these issues where you've got related claims happening alongside each other and how we can make sure they're dealt with practically. Well, I think as we all know, they're now umbrella proceedings and you've got to work out if there's a ubiquitous matter and a host case and all sorts of new terminology for us all. But I think it's something that is clearly a bit of a crusade at the moment in the tribunal. It sounds in, in the rule of law and is grounded in principle and makes sense from a 
a, a sort of straightforward perspective that similar cases should have similar outcomes. It's a particular issue for competition litigation where you have indirect and direct purchasers claiming in relation to the same infringement. Um, and, and multiplicity of claims. We've seen, obviously, with trucks, with interchange, you know, so many claimants, so many groups of claimants. They were all coming at different times, different stages of the proceedings. And so we now have the umbrella proceedings practice direction, which sets out uh, the way in which the CAT will try to um, achieve effective and consistent case management. There will be the ability for the president to designate groups of cases under a common umbrella and to deal with issues that are ubiquitous, common um, to the cases in the same way. How that is playing out, we can see in interchange and with the Merricks case being put together with the merchant cases. Whether actually it's going to help move things along and case management manage them in a way that also achieves the proportionality um, objective that we hear a lot from the tribunal. I honestly, I'm not sure. You've, you've got lots of different issues being split up to be tried in lots of different trials. And I, I think the theory is sound. The practicality of it is, you know, as we've said a lot today, is going to remain to be seen. I think there will be an area that we haven't yet seen also the influence of is where you have collective claims overlapping like Merrick's, what happens with the settlement dynamics and the CAT's involvement in approving settlements. Um, and I think that will be an issue that will have to be factored into um, case managing common issues like this because uh, one view is that actually it will make it much harder to settle claims if they're all being put together in a much bigger set of proceedings with lots of smaller salami sliced issues being divided up. It's certainly no, no issue that's just limited to collective actions. There was a judgment that came out this afternoon from the tribunal in the Alliance claim where we had a hearing a couple of weeks ago on a, a preliminary issue application. That, that claim, for those that you don't know, there are two sets of proceedings, not collective actions, but FX, exactly the same FX decision, two groups of claimants, two groups of defendant banks, bought at slightly different times um, for reasons I won't go into. And the original claim is slightly further ahead. The new claim, the defendants sought to have a preliminary issue of limitation heard, and the tribunals refused that today. And one of the key reasons for refusing that, well, really the key reason, was that it would hold up the original proceedings. And actually, there was an obvious case where these should all be case managed together. They have the same issues on liability. Yes, individual quantum cases, but the approach to quantum is common, same infringement, basically the same defendant group, same claimants. And the tribunal was you know, just not interested in slowing down the proceedings by a preliminary issue. And we will now have a, a joint CMC. Goodness knows what court will be able to <laughs> um, take us all in, in January next year. But it's, it's obviously a, a policy decision, I think, across all claims that have competition issues to manage them together. And Sophie, what's your experience about how this is working from the claimant's point of view? I think certainly we would agree with Kate that the, the tribunal's policy mission really is to 
be as efficient as possible, and they see one way of doing that as being able to case manage these claims together, and there are obvious benefits to that. Um, obviously, you know, there are similarities, you know, you get the consistency of judgments, you get the consistency of appeals, there are certainties that come along with that. But obviously, there's quite a lot of negatives as well, and Kate's already alluded to one, which is delay. It is very possible that you have, although related to, you know, cases relating to the same harm or the same conduct, that they are very different uh, factually. They may just be a very simple case of a business to, to a supplier versus a very complex pass-on situation. Um, and the fact that one of those cases needs to be held up unnecessarily for could be some quite some time. The costs that go along with that of having to turn up to CMCs, having to wait for appeals, judgments, all of that, you can see that the negatives quickly becoming very visible to those who want to bring a claim. So it kind of becomes, well, unless you file very quickly, file first, you know, your case is the lead case. That's being, I think it's called the host case under the UPO. You really lose that control to move your case along as how best for your client, uh, which can be quite in the concern. And I guess the other point just to bear in mind is obviously it's very much at the cat's discretion what is a related case. So you have the obvious cases that are clearly related. Um, you know, the two trains cases, the original ones, have been case managed since the beginning. They're near identical. There was never any debate about that. FX is the same. The interchange cases from Harkers Parker, the same. But then you get into the slightly similar on different aspects cases where you can see there might be common themes and common questions, especially in uh, the economic evidence or approaches to certain issues where there would be benefits to that. And for, you know, we've already mentioned uh, quite a few times the App Store cases. At the moment, there are similarities between those two cases. You could see the tribunal considering, you know, how how best to deal with that because obviously they aren't the classic example of, of cases that should be a UPO because they have different defendants, different claimants, they're to do with different factual scenarios. They're not a kind of trains-esque, near complete identical copy. So it's all very interesting to see what the tribunal will do. And there's a lot of discretion there for the tribunal to consider what is best for certain cases. And certainly, you know, it'll be very interesting to see um, how the president deals with that. Uh, he's obviously very keen to manage things efficiently and quickly. But, you know, sometimes you have to look at efficiency and quickness and just take a step back and say, well, what is actually best for the interests of these parties involved? And perhaps sometimes that's not managing these together. And then you obviously have to deal with things as you would in the high court where you just have differing judgments and you can refer to them and everyone deals with it. Kate? I, th I think one point to add to that is the intervention of the CMA as well, because you also now see in some of the collectives where the CMA have got um, parallel investigations or regulatory investigations that they are now seeking to be part of the proceedings and how that will shake out really, you know, is again, remains to be seen, very boring to say, but it's true. And we've had the order in the Apple Kent case where you can see the CMA's involvement is planned out and it will come up I don't think it's come up publicly. It will come up in other cases very soon, I think. And I think that will add another dynamic to how do you, how do you deal with these common issues. To turn to a slightly different topic then, funding has sometimes been called, I think, without exaggeration, the lifeblood of the collective proceedings regime, um, which brings issues to the fore that we've perhaps not seen in conventional competition litigation, in particular, the question of whether there's a tension or perhaps even a conflict between um, return for funders and redress for class members. So, Rosie and Sophie, I'd like to turn to you for some reflections on this topic. 
That's you, Sophie. Thank you. Well, I think this might be a very quick debate. Rosie, do you think there's a conflict? Um, I don't, so we can all move on. But uh, in all seriousness, and you've mentioned it already, Joseph, um, without funding the regime, just won't work, it won't get off the ground. Um, it's very much accepted that funding is not just the lifeblood, but the entire blood supply for the regime. That is the entire purpose of these cases. They are cases that are brought for harms where an individual could not bring it themselves. And so we, there needs to be that um, aspect of the regime and that needs to be there and working well. And I think quite, you know, my view is quite unfairly that often the funders are cast in a very negative light, um, that they're just there to make money, they are, you know, just out to get the big guys, just want to make pressure, get settlements and go from there. But, you know, the reality is the funding arrangements are public in the sense of the tribunal can see them from the outset. There's nothing hidden about them. They ask a lot of questions if they are, they do have questions about it. And it's completely monitored for the rest of the proceedings. It has to be monitored at any settlement. It'll be monitored at any distribution. So there's absolutely no chance for Rosie to take the funds and run away with it and use it to whatever she wants. And I think another point that's often forgotten is that a funder's uh, return is taken out of undistributed damages. So that is way down the line after any class member has come forward, sought their uh, share of the proceeds and there's been ample marketing, there's ample notification and at that stage for the huge risk that funders sometimes put into these cases, they can take a return. And I say the risk that's involved in this because it isn't a, you know, often we think of legal risk as the main risk that is undertaken in these cases by everybody involved, uh, especially on the claimant side. But there's also other risks that will happen and the funders need to take a chance on that. You don't know what will happen with the CMA coming involved or doing a finding. We don't know what will happen overseas. You don't know how a defendant will react. All these things go into it and it's a very uncertain investment, you know, compared with some of the other more mundane things that you could invest your money in. So certainly it is often described as a high return, but you do have to also look at what exactly goes into that return and why is it perhaps seen at the higher side because of the risk that's involved. And the risk that's involved reflects the fact that we need funders to make this regime work. They're one and the same. It's a circle, it's an ecosystem. Without uh, funders, it wouldn't work. So we do need to compensate them for that risk. And then that compensation needs to be appropriate for the regime to work and so on and so forth. I think Rosie made a very intelligent remark the other day at a, a different conference, which was basically, it, it's near impossible for um, a funder to take a return that's inappropriate in these circumstances. And you do, you know, wonder. In other circumstances, you know, there's other funding arrangements out there for commercial claims, for other types of claims that aren't at this level of scrutiny at all. But it's the collective claims that are always focused on, which is, you know, part and parcel of the fact that it's new, a new regime, but certainly is something that uh, I would hope would die down over time as people get more used to the concept of funding being necessary. And although in the US you hear these stories about, you know, big bad uh, law firms, big bad funders taking money and running with it, that is very rare and everyone in the US accepts that funding is necessary and the vast majority, if not all of the cases, predominantly proceed on that basis. And then you do have to look, you know, if, if funding is a concern, what are the alternatives? If there wasn't, you know, the private companies putting funding in, what would you then be able to do? There's no government pot of money that we can apply for to get funds to bring these collectives. We, 
you know, there's no crowdsourcing website where people can donate to the causes that they think are viable to them. There's, it just doesn't exist. And so I go back to the main point that's been, you know, I've made from the outset, which is without funding, the regime will fail. And it's in everyone's interest for the regime to get off the ground and to work properly. And for it to work properly, funders do need a return, but there's absolutely no chance that they will get a return that's not appropriate in those circumstances. And I think Rosie might... Agree. What, what, what she said. No, conscious I'm going to be the person keeping everybody from their burning questions and subsequently drinks. I'm not going to add a lot to what Sophie said because she put it all so eloquently. Uh, but I am just going to pose a few points and questions. The first is we're taking risk because it's a non-recourse investment. And so I just remind everybody of that. The second is the, the, the point Sophie raised, which is genuinely what is the alternative the third point is why is all the focus on us if one looks at the operation of the regime i would encourage perhaps not today because i'm definitely in the minority a conversation about fees generally in the cost of this regime i'm going to put it out there solicitors fees expert costs disclosure costs ATE premiums, the costs of the operation of the English court regime, with all of the complexity Kate talked about of umbrella proceedings, of linking claims, of opt-ins, opt-out, and the eye-wateringly high, I'm going to say it, budgets from the claimant and defence side, not because they're unreasonable necessarily in and of themselves in the context of the operation of this regime, but more generally because of, the, of what we are addressing. I think that is something we need to bear in mind as a jurisdiction when we are looking at the broader operation of the collective action regime in other European, keeping UK and Europe for the moment, uh, regimes, looking at the Netherlands, looking at Germany, looking at Italy, looking at Spain, looking at Portugal, and the tiny size of their budgets compared to what we're seeing here. There is a reason for that. Funder returns aren't driving that, but the costs of the regime are that need to be funded. And I think that is a really important conversation that needs to be addressed head on more than funder returns. Just one quick follow-up point, uh, not to impute any of that, and clearly, you know, the ecosystem does depend on funding being viable. Um, that is, you know, how it works. We do, though, need to accept that there is a tension, at least in principle, between maximising the ability of class members to recover from an aggregate award versus the amount that's left unrecovered and therefore available for the funders and indeed the claimant lawyers. That tension does exist, and that's why the tribunal has to have regard to that, of course, to sort of balance that appropriately. So I do think we need to acknowledge that. And, you know, I, I don't think that is a consideration which I would suggest motivating ill intent generally, but I have literally in one certification hearing had the situation where uh, on our side, we'd raised concerns about the fact that very few people in the class were likely to be able to evidence their entitlement to claim. And so there's likely to be very little distribution in the end on any view to, to consumers. Uh, and the tribunal itself said, well, why don't we just make the process of claiming easier, just have a website and people just click a button and opt in. And I've literally had, you know, counsel on the other side saying, oh, no, 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 we don't want to make it too easy for people to, to claim. So it, it's there, right, as a factor. And I think we have to acknowledge it's in the mix and it's something the tribunal has to, has to police. Rosie? I don't think there's a tension there, actually. I don't think the fact of ensuring claimant redress 
is something that necessarily goes to fund a return. I think ensuring that there is good claimant take up in the first case, set of cases is important for everybody. And I think just kind of, and I, and I know you're not necessarily doing this, Mark, but presenting the funder return as the reason why we somehow secret squirrel want only 3% of claimants to come forward is just not a reasonable rep representation of reputable funders. And I'm not painting us all in the same boat here, in the same way as not all lawyers go in the same boat. You know, different strokes for different folks, right? But for us, we are modeling endlessly to make sure funder returns work on a very, very large claimant take up. And if it happens to be that only 3% of claimants come forward, that doesn't increase our return, actually, based on our conservative modeling. I, I agree. I think my concern is I've seen at least one case where once you get the funding agreement in the configuring and you can see the terms, it's very clear that the thing only works economically if you actually have a very, very, very low level of distribution in the ends people in the class. And I think there are some more aggressive funding arrangements out there where they frankly won't likely get to their minimum investment return, you know, failing which they could pull the plug. Uh, unless you get very few people actually claim from the class. And I think that's where the issue becomes potentially quite acute. But that, you know, not suggesting that's representative of things across the board at all. Kate? The funding considerations are different when you look at an opt-in claim as well. And I think it's important to remember that that was quite a big part of the tribunal's analysis in the FX judgment, was looking at the funding there. Because what happens with an opt-in claim is that there aren't undistributed damages. You know, everyone is kind of come forward for their money. And so the funder takes from the damages pot. And that was one of the considerations in balancing opt-in, opt-out, is, is that something that the tribunal was happy to allow for the, um, for the claimants, that they may potentially get less? And so I think it's, there is a bigger conversation <laughs> that is, I think, when you look at consumer claims versus business claims, there are different considerations on the funding issues as well. So looking forward, we've been focusing today on antitrust claims and some of the issues that arise there through collective proceedings. But this was always attended as a litmus test for collective actions more generally. Um, is the UK now ready for collective actions to also cover consumer law? Perhaps we start with you, Sophie. Uh, absolutely. There's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't. But certainly all the benefits of the collective proceedings that are seen in antitrust could be shown for the other types of claims. So we're talking environmental harms, data breach, all those types of things. You get the deterrent effect against the conduct. You get the access to justice for those who've been harmed as well as the compensation that goes along with that. You know, it gets that greater equality of arms um, to con generally consumers, but to others, to businesses as well, where they've been harmed, that they can actually enforce their rights and they can get compensation for a harm that's occurred to them. And the practicalities that come with the collective regime are such that they, the entire purpose is the large-scale compensation and redress. And there's very little downside that I can see to opening up the types of claims. In, in fact, I see only benefits because, as Mark's already alluded to today, there are several claims which push boundaries. 
of the antitrust world. And if it was to open up to consumer claims, there wouldn't be that issue anymore. Um, it would simply be a consumer claim. And there's nothing special about antitrust. I know everybody in this room loves it, but <laughs> there's no special need for there to be collected. It's just an antitrust harm. And so certainly I would be very keen for it to be expanded in the near future. Uh, I think just my answer to that would be the collective proceedings regime already does de facto expand consumer claims. <laughs> you know, look at all three of the rail tickets claims. Those are not really, in any conventional sense, competition law causes of action. They're, they're consumer mis-selling, consumer information type complaints, which have been shoehorned into the collective proceedings regime because of the attractiveness of the opt-out regime and the aggregate damages rules. Um, and we're seeing that a lot. And you know, look at some of the tech cases as well. So the um, another government one, the uh, battery life allegations raised against Apple in every other jurisdiction where those claims have been brought, they've been brought as a product liability claim. You know, here we treat it as antitrust, uh, seemingly. And I, I think what's happening is that, and this is where I, you know, really struggle with it, just sort of intellectually. I fear we're sort of heading into this space, and maybe it would be solved by what Sophie proposes of actually just formally rolling this out to other areas anyway and getting rid of this tension. But we're getting into this territory where it's not clear to me what the anchoring points are anymore. We're treating competition law, specifically antitrust, as if it needs to be a panacea for a bunch of consumer-type grievances, which in the old world, prior to the enactment to this regime, would have been, if they sounded in competition law at all, they would have been at most features of a market that were operating suboptimally within the sort of market study, market investigation field. Uh, and there was a reason why that regime is there, which is that those things don't necessarily appropriately sound in antitrust, especially not when you attach to that a potentially multi-billion or hundreds of million liability in terms of class action exposure. And I, I just worry about this direction of travel. I feel like this regime, something weird in evolutionary terms has happened where we've kind of leaped over several generations of these sort of easy cases and we've gone straight to these really boundary pushing, you know, challenging ones that, that really sort of take us in this territory of uncertainty about what the underpinnings are any longer uh, and what the rules are for, for business as well. And I, I worry a bit heading into this period of the economic cycle if we get some of these judgments, you know, cases resulting in adverse judgments, and we take down a global household name, we bankrupt it, or we take down a business that then needs to be bailed out by taxpayers, I worry a bit that the business sentiment, and people have been in the ear of the Conservative Party at the conference last week about this stuff already, we can quickly find that the lobbying really, really intensifies. And what at the moment is presented as being something that's pro-consumer can tip very easily into being perceived as being anti-business. I just think we need to be quite careful. It's a fairly fragile ecosystem. It's not in equilibrium at the moment. And I worry that some of these cases push it in a place that could actually somewhat backfire. But to answer your question directly, is it gonna spread into these other areas? Yeah, probably, that'll be my guess. <laughs> I would only add that I think the only way it's going to spread into other areas is by statute, subject to the points Mark, Mark made around spread, which I don't comment on. And I think the government's preoccupied. So I, I, I would like to see it happen. I think the WAMCA regime in the Netherlands is giving us a run for our money, but I've already covered that in previous comments. I don't see a statutory regime coming soon, but I hope it does. 
Actually, one just last little thought. There's an issue here for the CMA. Someone alluded earlier about interventions. Yeah. Kate, you mentioned yeah. them. The reason they're doing that, of course, is they risk being sidelined. Because, you know, if you look at what they're trying to do in terms of developing policy in the consumer space, well, they're being leapfrogged. This is just being brought in class actions that are pushing the boundaries of the law. So that's why they're now looking to intervene in these cases, because they risk being made irrelevant. And I worry, too, about, you know, the DM, DMU. Yeah, the legislation for that still has not had parliamentary time allocated to it. In the meantime, we've got this proliferation of standalone tech abuse dominance cases, which again risks making it semi-irrelevant because the law is just developed in the meantime. So I think that, that's quite an issue for government as well, to be honest. Kate? I was going to make exactly the same point. <laughs> no, 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 but I think you're absolutely right. I think it does risk sidelining them, and I think it risks sidelining the market investigation regime as well, because if you actually look at some of these cases, I think, Sophie, you made the point, a lot of them come on from not, they're not follow-on claims. The abuse, a lot of the abuse cases come on from the CMA or one of the sectoral regulators having had a look at the market, there is something wrong in the market. And then does that translate into a, an, an antitrust claim, a damages claim is the question that the, the class reps have asked themselves. Because it's something that the CMA and the regulators, for whatever reason, and their, their case specific, didn't feel able to take them on into that space. And so I think they've got a difficult decision to make as to whether they prioritize antitrust investigations or market investigation reference, or market investigation regime and, and what their role is in all of this. But the slowness of the regulator is not like the consumer's fault. And if they've got good, valuable, viable claims, which we'll find out when, if, if and when there's judgments or arguably settlements. But I, I find it a bit difficult to, to, to view it through the lens of, oh, the regulator's being overtaken. So keeping regulators to time is, of course, important. And ditto, ditto panels. We are more or less on time, but we, we, but we, do, we do have time for uh, any questions from the audience on the topic our panellists have discussed so compellingly. I'm Alison Berridge from Moncton Chambers. I was just going to ask the panel to talk a little bit about settlement. I'm guessing that's sort of one of the next developments that we'll see, sort of settlement and also voluntary redress. I mean, I've got literally nothing of substance to say other than I hope settlement is the next development that we see. If you want a quick comment, I know Marcus Smith gave a speech the other day, didn't he, where he said, you know, that might be the next thing that we see. I'm not so sure. I think 2023 could be the year of the preliminary issue. And I think we could see some quite important judgments there. Some of those may go up um, further. Um, I can only speak to you know the things I'm closely involved in, but I actually don't see that on the horizon soon. I'm, I'm actually not sure. I wonder if it may come as a consequence of seeing the umbrella proceedings and the grouping together of direct and indirect purchaser claims. Because if you start off and if you look at interchange and you started off with all the merchant claims and then the Merrick's claim came in later and afterwards, you know, one tactic for MasterCard might have been to settle that out, you know, get rid of that one or get in, so you don't get the tension between the pass on issues between the cases. I mean, there is, I think, a world in which that might be a tactical move that defendants do think about is settling out one aspect of multi-layered claims quite quickly. I was just going to make the, the same point as Kate, which is yeah, a settlement would be wonderful in some of these cases, but the kind of you know, ripple effect onto similar cases when we, you know, there are a lot of standalone collectives, but there are also a lot of follow-on collectives. And those are the ones where 
you know, are probably more ripe for settlement just purely because they are a follow-on. You don't have the same level of inquiry. But, you know, if, if they're going to be held up, uh, if they're not going to really settle anything, what is the incentive then? Certainly because in a collective settlement, it has to be approved by the tribunal. You have to put all your terms before it. We don't quite yet know what interrogation the tribunal may do and any I could see any any party to that settlement being quite worried about that if you had also you know a 47a claim for the same conduct as a collective so it's all all these kind of connecting factors um, will make next year particularly interesting so just one other thought um something we might see at some point um I don't know when and how it will arise but it's conceivable that we might see a voluntary compensation scheme launched in a certified claim, accompanied shortly thereafter by an application for decertification of the collective proceedings. I don't exclude that that could happen at some point. Hi, yes, uh, Ben Barclock, BCLP. Um, just touching on something that Annalee um, spoke about at the beginning and wondering what your thoughts are, which is um, the challenge for witness evidence in collective proceedings. I just wondered whether you have any views on how you think that that will develop. So I'm inclined to say that the point that Anley raised is more of an issue for the class reps than it is for, for me on the defence side. Um, but you know, clearly there's an issue around that. And I, th I think it's something that tribunalists start to be conscious of, actually, as we get more into the sort of post-certification phase, these things going towards trial. But who is actually going to give evidence on behalf of class members? And you know, one of the things I think we're going to see quite a lot of in these cases, actually, also because it's being used as the, as the plaster to sort of cover the gaps in the economic methodologies in some of these cases is the consumer survey being touted as being the answer or the way of triangulating you know the the factual position in relation to members of the class for example what they would have done in the counterfactual world absent the alleged abuse and so i think we're going to see a cottage industry in um survey design and use of surveys which is not actually uh, i don't think going to be a cakewalk for anyone concerned not least because my experience is you know, clearly recently, a lot of survey design companies don't want to go anywhere near litigation. And so it's not going to be the work of moments to even operate an economic methodology that turns critically on getting survey evidence. And of course, there's, we all know survey design is a Nobel you know, prize-winning field. It's very, very difficult. And especially the further back in time you're looking or the more arcane the hypotheses that are needing to put to the respondents to garner the data... Um, the less reliable the outputs are likely to be. So that is one prediction I'd make. I think we're all going to become survey experts in the next few years. It's going to become a real feature of these cases. Just to add, I don't necessarily think this is an issue particularly for the collective regime in that there's always information asymmetry, especially in the 101 cartel cases, which are cartels and secret by their nature. So it's not necessarily, I guess, just the collective sphere where you have this very uh, information asymmetry being quite extreme. Um, but certainly saying that, you know, there, there will be some challenges, um, no doubt, about how you then evidence um, for class-wide harm. And quite frankly, the regime isn't there yet. And um, it'll be very interesting to see how that develops and what is put forward as alternatives, because you do need to look at practicability and um, I can't quite think of the word now, but making sure it's cost effective. You can't, you know, it, these are PCRs, they have funding, they have a budget, they can't go off and do a market study like the CMA can do. So they need to really pool their resources on what's going to be the best way to get a sample, for want of a better word, and... You know, I'm sure in the near future we'll see some very creative ideas, the survey being you know, one, which may not be the best one, but it is one at the moment. Um, but certainly um, you know, there'll, there'll be interesting um, ideas coming up for sure 
um, in the near future. I think speed of the litigation will influence this as well. I mean, we saw in one of the trains case and yet to be seen exactly how it plays out. You know, the president looking to impose a, you know, extraordinarily fast timetable to trial. Um, and that doesn't really allow for much time for witness evidence. It doesn't really allow much time for expert evidence or any, you know, particular, you know, fact gathering stages if you're going to be at you know, in a trial within a year. So I think speed will play a role as, as well as to what PCRs can do. Just linked to that, it's not just factual evidence, but disclosure and often third party disclosure where our regime isn't really fit for purpose. I mean, it's, it is used in commercial litigation, but it's not very usual and it's very tightly circumscribed. And how do you adapt that in a claimant consumer area where you've got no witnesses, you need the evidence, it's necessarily going to impose a burden on a third party that's got no involvement in this litigation. Why does the third party have to engage all the costs of searching and protecting business secrets and things that, you know, there's got to be a balancing exercise there. So I think that's another minefield that will be explored as well. And I think this pulls in as well with indirect purchases, consumer claims particularly. What, how does upstream pass on work? Because we've obviously explored downstream plus on in some detail in Sainsbury's in the interchange, but we haven't really looked at how upstream pass on works to establish the claim and whether the presumptions in the damages directive apply or what burden of, and standard of proof applies. And there, obviously, third party disclosure is going to be very relevant. We've heard a lot about the UK regime, and we were looking to hear earlier about some of the nascent challenges that regimes in other European, European jurisdictions are facing. Um, and of course, we've all seen um, challenges faced in the US, Australian, Israeli regimes, and then Canadian regimes as well. Um, if there was one lesson that UK regime could draw from the early experience of these other jurisdictions, what would it be? Certainly some guidance on carriage disputes would be welcomed. Um, obviously, they're an issue elsewhere as well. And um, the fact that we don't yet have certainty in that area is quite perplexing. Uh, this is um, really mundane, but it's, I think it would make a real practical difference. Uh, one thing that I think the CAT should really consider is just breaking out of the constraint of having just two hearing rooms in the tribunal. Use, <laughs> use the roles building. Um, you've got loads of chairs on the roster, you know, run more cases simultaneously, but accord them the amount of time that they need to be properly managed through to a sensible trial of a sensible duration. I think at the moment the concerns around pipeline are driving some case management decisions in a way that I think is suboptimal. I think one thing they could learn from the US, and I appreciate the desire not to be in US-style litigation, but, but the multi-district litigation process, the MDL process, works pretty well in the US, where you have opt-out claims, and then it, people have opted out, and you have a, a number of direct action plaintiffs that are all case-managed under this one banner. And it's much more formalized than the umbrella order system. Maybe this is the umbrella order system is the, the start of that process, but it, it, it's quite tightly controlled um, and I think does actually help move along common issues um, in claims. What they said, no, um, no, I'm only joking. I, uh, I think we should all take great hope from the Australian and Canadian regimes particularly and the Israeli regime to prove to us that it can work. So I'd like to thank the panel at this stage and, of course, 
in absentia are cross-European panellists as well. And I think if there's one thing we can all take away from this is that we're in the privileged position of having cross-dialogue between these jurisdictions, which means that we can learn from the strengths of all the jurisdictions and, of course, also learn from each other's mistakes. Um, so if you'd like to join me in thanking this uh, UK panel, and then uh, we will proceed uh, for some drinks outside. So thanks again there to Joseph, Rosie, Mark, Sophie and Kate. Uh, let's hear from a few more of today's attendees with their thoughts on that discussion. So I'm uh, Andre Yurki from Womble Bond Dickinson. Intensely interesting and thought-provoking. Uh, it really is confirming that there are still lots of issues to be resolved. And what it does mean is that there is a very, very healthy pipeline for antitrust litigation going forward. We're still at the early stages of collective proceedings, and especially if they uh, move sideways and are used outside the antitrust space, then there's an awful lot of work uh, and a huge pipeline going forward. And hopefully, in the end, some degree of redress for consumers, but by the same token, not hammering businesses uh, are completely run out uh, and off the road. Hi, I'm Helen Jenkins from Oxera. I thought it was really interesting to get under the skin of some of the questions that are quite practical, but really important for how we develop the practice for these cases um, over the next couple of years. And I think as we heard, uh, you know, people saying, oh, when are we going to get settlements? And people saying, oh, no, the next stage is going to be preliminary issues and we've got disclosure and we've got and sort of setting out the reality of how these cases actually evolve and the, the fact that so, for some of these things the law is being made every day in the courts. Thanks again to all our contributors there. Well, that's actually it for this episode. Don't forget, Oxera would love to hear your thoughts on this topic. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, uh, you can do that on their agenda website by visiting oxera.com forward slash latest dash agenda. Or you can comment on their LinkedIn and Twitter posts where they have shared this podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today and are interested in finding out more about working with the Oxera team, uh, please do get in touch via the website. We'd also love for you to subscribe or follow this podcast which you can do on your favorite podcast app and if you've enjoyed listening please do give us a positive rating and review and finally if you'd like to get in touch with Oxera about agenda and any of the points raised here today or in any of our previous episodes uh, you can do that by emailing agenda at uh, but for now thanks for listening and goodbye <laughs>